So this morning does mark the first Sunday in Advent, and we're starting a, a, a short um, sermon series called Waiting for Jesus. We've been in Mark since we started um, back in September. We're going to take a few weeks to really focus in um, on the season of, of Advent. It's such an important time um, in the church calendar that we really want to mark that season each year by looking at the arrival of Jesus. And that's what the word Advent means. It means arrival. And so for millennia, the Christian church has celebrated this first coming, this arrival of Jesus in humility as a baby. And at the same time, the season of Advent, as we look on one hand at the, the, the humility of God himself to come as a baby, we also, as Christians in this century, look forward to the coming of God in his glory, where Jesus comes as our long and awaited king. And so Advent is really this season of not only looking back, but also looking forward. It's a season of remembering and rejoicing. It's a season of watching and waiting. And I want to hone in on this word waiting. This is kind of the theme of our season of Advent. Because no one likes waiting, right? Like I've never met the person who's like, I just dig it. I love waiting. When I see a line, I want to find the longest one. I want to get in the very back. That's like my joy is waiting. I like just going places. I go to the DMV just to wait. I love it. No, we despise it, right? When we go food shopping and we start approaching the lines, what happens? We're like skilled detectives. Like which one is the shortest? We start profiling the cashier, don't we? You, I, I'm not the only one. You're going, who's the most competent? Who's got it together? If I see their little, their light blinking, I'm like, I'm staying far away from that person. There's no way I'm getting stuck in that line, right? How do you feel when your two-day guaranteed Amazon Prime package is late? You feel betrayed. <laughs> how could, how, Amazon, we've got this great relationship. How could you, right? Start wondering, did my neighbor snag my package? Like, what's going on? Our hatred for waiting has even created an industry for people who are willing to pay others to wait for them. Did you know in New York, they have this service called the Same Old Line Dudes, LLC. They're incorporated. They, this is their tagline, listen. It says, we wait for your wants. So if you're going to the big city and you wanna to go to the nice restaurant for a fee, they will wait in line for you. You, you want to hit that new Broadway show, Hamilton? They'll stand in line waiting for the, the cancellations to grab your ticket for the right price. One professor in psychology at the University of St. Thomas and St. Paul said this, waiting too long in a line is often perceived as a violation of our right to manage and control our time. We see it as a violation that I have to wait. She goes on to say, we live in, the mo in one of the most individualistic cultures in the world, which means this, we want what we want, we want it now, and it better be quick and easy. Now, I know I'm not the only one who identifies with that statement, but there are also times when we are willing to wait. We're willing to wait because we know that the thing that we're waiting for is worth it. On June 29th, 2007. Anybody know what happened on that day? 2007. iPhone. I heard it. iPhone. It's the day the first iPhone dropped. Now, I am a technological early adopter, okay? I, when I saw back in January that this was going to be released, 
I started getting extra shifts at work. I started saving my penny. I wanted to be one of the first people to have this device in my hands. Why? Because I knew that it would change history. I knew that it would, be a, it would become a cultural artifact. I knew that it would really kind of change the way that our society moves and lives our life with the, with, with the invention and the, the proliferation of smartphones. See, I was glad to wait all day to get my hands on a piece of history. The professor also said in her article, if what comes at the front of the line is important enough to us, we are willing to wait for it. And here's this, this is the line. And your perspective of what's important might be dramatically different from mine. Did you hear that? What changes our willingness to wait is entirely wrapped up in our perspective of the thing we're waiting for, right? If our perspective is I should be able to get in this line and get out, they're just groceries. It's kind of a a necessary thing of life, but I don't wanna have to wait for it. Then when we see that line, we're agitated. When we see that little blinker go up and we're like, oh, come on. How can you not figure out the the cash register, right? But when it's something that's important to us, we don't even have to be convinced of the need to wait. And everything really hinges on that perspective. That's what changes our attitude. What can categorically change our waiting is perspective. Our perspective of what we're waiting for and what we see as the meaning and purpose of our waiting can categorically change the, our experience of waiting and the actual results of that waiting. But more important than waiting in long lines at the checkout, I want to ask, how many of you in your daily lives feel stuck? You're kind of waiting for your present, yeah, that's a lot of you, right? You're waiting for your present circumstances to change. And we're waiting for those things to change. It can be really, really hard. We're waiting for things to get better. And sometimes it feels like we're going, what, one step forward just to go two steps back. As we enter into this Advent season, I want us to lean into the waiting instead of finding the momentary distraction from the hustle of the season. Because see, we can get so short-sighted and so uh, self-focused that we're blinded to what God is actually doing in and through us during the season of waiting. Isaiah 40 This text that Leanna just read for us is going to give us a perspective that shows how God actually leads us into seasons of waiting for a purpose, to uniquely shape us and form us as the people of God. And as we make our way through this text, we've got four uh, points this morning. We're going to see a perspective of restoration. We'll see a perspective of revolution. We'll see a perspective of reliability. And finally, a perspective of relief. So for the note takers, that's restoration, revolution, reliability, and relief. Now, before we jump headlong into this text, I, if, if you're not familiar with uh, biblical history, um, Isaiah 40 might kind of catch you off guard because you really, you're not really oriented to kind of what's happening on the world stage. And so before we get there, let me give you a little bit of context. See, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and he served under four different Israelite kings. Now, these are not exactly the golden years for Israel. In fact, if you read chapters 1 through 39, it's like judgment, 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 okay? It's pretty harsh. 
See, they had experienced expansion under, under the King David. That might be a king you're familiar with, King David. Under King David, the kingdom of Israel expanded. They were conquering um, uh, nearby nations. They were expanding their borders. They were growing um, in wealth. And then under Solomon, they built the temple. They had times of peace and prosperity. But after Solomon died, his sons couldn't get it together. They, there was all this infighting, and eventually it led to a civil war, and it split the kingdom of Israel into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. And things started to go downhill. And what you find as you look at the history of Israel in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, is that it seems like with each successive king, it doesn't get better. In fact, it gets worse and worse and worse. And by the, the time period where, uh, where, where uh, Isaiah is, it's just gotten bad. King Asa has, um, uh, Ahaz has uh, sacrificed his own children to the, to the gods of Baal. Um, Hezekiah has formed treaties with um, neighboring nations and putting this trust in them. They didn't lead the people to the Lord. In fact, they started leading the people to worship idols of the surrounding nations. And so when we pick up in Isaiah 40, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom by now have been conquered by Assyria and Babylon. So the, the idea of a free uh, and sovereign Israel nation is gone. They've been conquered. And in, in the ancient world, when they conquered you, they also deported you. And they, they took like the best of the best from your society. They'd take your lawyers, they'd take your doctors, they'd take all your professionals, and they'd say, we're gonna send you to our city and you're gonna build us up. And then they would leave the people that they didn't want behind and be like, man, you guys kind of fend for yourselves on the outskirts. And there was this drive to, to basically change your culture and to assimilate you. No longer will you be Israelites. You're going to be Babylonians. You're going to adopt our culture. You're going to adopt our uh, food laws. You're going to adopt our gods, and you're going to become one of us. It's essentially ethnic cleansing. And these people, Isaiah 40, Isaiah is writing to, are in the midst of this now. They're a deported, almost their, their culture is being ripped from them in Babylon. Isaiah has spent the last 39 chapters speaking about um, the judgment that God has concerning sin. And as, we, as our kids are learning downstairs, God is just. He is actually a right to punish sin. And in this, the, these first 39 chapters, he covers all the big ones. He talks about how um, they've oppressed the poor. He talks about how they've been greedy. He talks about how uh, they've had racial prejudices among them. He's talked about how uh, they, they, they've, they've scorned um, sexual purity. He talks about how they've abandoned their marriages, how they've not been faithful to teach their children about God. I mean, just chapter after chapter after chapter of saying, this is how you got in this mess. You have abandoned God. You've abandoned his righteous way. And look what happens. When you turn away from the God of life, what you have is death. Look around you is what he's saying. It's with that background that the words of Isaiah 40 have such significance and promise. You see, he's promised to them that their period of exile will only be 70 years. Now, we hear that and go, that's my entire, that's like my whole lifetime, right? God is giving them a bigger picture of, uh, of time there, but he's saying it will only be 70 years, but you are about to enter into a season of waiting, and it's not going to get better politically. It's not going to get better socially. It's not going to get better economically. But there is hope. 
Now with that, let's jump into verse one. We'll have the words on the screen. He says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You see, we have to enter into their situation. These are people who've experienced war on their streets. There are conquered and defeated people. And to add insult to injury, they've been deported to a foreign land with all this pressure to assimilate and to lose their identity. You can imagine how overwhelming that must feel to have your very identity taken from you. Their world has been shattered and cataclysmically altered. And so for people like that, what they don't need is cheap comfort, kind of just sentimental, hey man, our thoughts and prayers are with you. In fact, that would be cruel, wouldn't it? Isaiah doesn't offer cheap comfort, but true comfort that comes from God himself. How easy would it have been for them in that state to look back on their past and to see their record of sin before them and realize, man, we have really screwed this up. And at the same time, not only do they see the weight of their sin, they see the holiness of God and they realize he's so perfect. He's given us chance after chance and we've blown it. This must be the end. And like a ray of hope, this word of comfort enters in and he says, no, I'm the God of infinite chances. I'm the God of comfort. He speaks tenderly to their heart. I picture this like a father drawing a crying child in and starting to speak tenderly to their heart. He's giving them encouragement and love. He wipes away their tears And he says, it's okay, I'm here. It'll be over soon, I've got you. See, they would have felt like a failure. They would have felt like illegitimate children, disconnected, cut off from God. I'm reminded of the story in the New Testament in Luke's gospel of the prodigal son. You might be familiar with that famous story The story goes like this. The son abandons his father, just kind of says, hey, all you are to me is what you're worth financially, so why don't you give me my due? I know how to live life. I'm gonna go to the far, I'm so sick of your rule and your reign. I wanna get out of here. Just give me my money. I'd like to leave. And so instead of the father just going, don't let the door hit you on the way out, he actually gives him his inheritance. Says, okay, go. And as the story goes, the The son leaves and he squanders it all relatively quickly and he finds himself empty with nothing. Doesn't have a job, doesn't have a, a penny to his name. He's actually picking up the scraps that the pigs leave behind and he realizes, man, I've got nothing. Even the servants in my father's house, at least they get a paycheck. At least they've got a roof over their head. At least they have a warm meal. And so he starts working up the courage and he's he's walking back home. You know, you can imagine him almost rehearsing that that forgiveness speech in his head. He's done it a hundred times. And the Bible says that while he's still far and a long way off, the father who has been looking at the horizon for his son, every day he sees him. And this old Jewish man hikes up his, his garments and he runs after the son, which old Jewish men don't do that, by the way. 
He runs after the son. And before the son can even get out the first words of his speech, the father wraps him up and he says, my son is here. I thought you were dead. You were lost, but you are now found. He starts calling for his servants and he says, go get the fattened calf, the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been waiting for a a celebration, go slaughter, invite the whole town. Let's have a party because my son who was lost is found. My son who was once dead is alive. That's what's happening in this passage. This is the prodigal son story just told by Isaiah. He says, did you hear it? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You see, these were once not his people, and they said, you are not our God. And he looks at them and says, you are still my people, and I am still your God. And God says, take comfort, your mine. Look what he says in verse two. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. All that she has received from the Lord's hand is double for all her sins. See, what God is saying is, he's like, guys, I'm not just saying my thoughts and my prayers are with you. He's saying, I'm gonna speak to your hearts. And this isn't just mere sentiment. This isn't a hallmark card. He is actually trying to persuade their hearts to believe him. You see, this is not just an expression of comfort and kindness, but this is an invitation to respond to God's love. What he's saying is your time of restoration is coming. Your warfare, your hardship will come to an end. And not only will there come a day when you're set free from political oppression and allowed to go home, what he's saying is it goes far deeper than that. He's saying your sin, the thing that has separated us is going to be pardoned. This word for warfare that we see in this text, it can also be translated as hardship, but it's not just a senseless hardship. It's actually a word of hardship that means it has a purpose to it. So what's happening is this season of hardship that God has led them into actually has meaning and purpose. This time of waiting is meant to turn their hearts back to God. Because what have they done as a nation? They've basically said, we don't want you as our king. We don't want you in our life. We want to do things on our own. This time of waiting, of being pulled out, of of getting kind of their just reward is for them to go, look what happens when you reject God. Look around you. Is this the life you've always dreamed of? Was this what you thought it would look like when you rejected me and went your own way? You see, the story of the Bible is that God himself is life. So when you reject God, you are rejecting life. And they're getting a firsthand taste of the implications of their rejection. But God wants them to have a perspective of restoration during the season of waiting. You see, he loves them far too much to let them stay where they are. He's saying this time of discipline will come to an end. And guess what? you'll be forgiven and restored. See, in the season of waiting, restoration is a word of hope. They will once again be his people. So how does he do it? He says that they will receive from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You know, when I first read that, I thought that that meant more punishment. But as I looked more into it and really kind of dug into what it actually means, it means that, they have actually received double payment. The, 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 the debt that our sin incur, uh, uh, occurs, 
that God has actually paid double. Not only has he just covered to the, to the degree of their sin, he's actually paid above and beyond. He's not just forgiven their debt, but he's given them the grace of his love. Full restoration, full reconciliation. And what this does is it surfaces one of the, the mysteries of the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this refrain that God is just, that he has a right to punish sin. And at the same time, we hear these proclamations that God is a God of love, that he's forgiving, that he doesn't wish any would perish. And if you're tracking with me, you're thinking, well, how can both of those be true at the same time? For any of my philosophy friends in the room, that's like the law of mutual in, uh, incompatibility. Seems like if God is just, how can that reconcile with God also being loving? How can God punish sin at the same time pardon sinners? Because what he can't do is just sweep it under the rug, right? That would offend his justice. He can't just wish it away either. He can't turn a blind eye. You see, to do those things would treat his holiness as negotiable, and it would treat sin as negligible. So how can God be both just and forgiving? And there's this tension that's not going to get resolved on how God can be both loving and just until we get to the New Testament. Jesus comes to live the life that we should have lived and didn't. And he comes to die the death that we deserved to die. You see, God's plan for restoration will be fully realized in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Isaiah is gonna give a major hint at this later on in his book in Isaiah 53. He's gonna say it like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, it's the gospel in the book of Isaiah. He's saying the way that God is gonna punish sins is through this suffering servant, that God is gonna raise up this one who will be the payment price for our sins. He will be wounded so that we can be healed. You see, at the cross is where justice and mercy kiss. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we see this mystery, this tension resolved. And when we wait with that kind of perspective, it actually changes the way that we wait. The grace of restoration gives us the perspective we need to endure. But not only does God give us a perspective of restoration to endure this season, he also gives us a perspective of revolution. Look with me at verse three. It says this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. You see, they've just heard these great words of comfort that restoration is coming, and now the tone changes to action, right? He said, prepare the way, make straight, right? These are words of action. What he's saying is the Lord is getting ready to come, and now it's time for us to get ready. You see, Isaiah knows that they've been in captivity and that they're unable to build a road for God. This, is, this isn't an actual call for them to uh, walk out in the streets of Babylon and build God a road. This is actually a word picture for them to understand what's about to happen. You see, in those days, when a king was coming to a new part of his empire, the people would be excited. They would know, hey man, the king is coming. And so they would make sure that their best foot was forward. They're scrubbing the graffiti off of the walls. They're out there making sure that there's a good road for the king to come in. They're making all kinds of preparations. 
It was a way to honor him and show him that we're not only do we want you here, but we're desirous of your king and your rule. What this is saying is prepare your hearts. Make a pathway for God to come in. You see, he's going to bring about the restoration. And now it's time for us to get ready to receive him as king. Do you see what he's doing in their season of waiting? He's transforming it from this idle time of sulking and despairing into a purposeful time of preparation. See, waiting can feel like a waste of time. And I don't know if you're like me. I hate wasting time. I just, I think of it, like, I just hear that phrase, like, time is money. Don't waste it. You only get so much of it, right? And so when we feel like we're waiting, it feels like a waste. I could be doing something else. But in God's economy, this season of wasting, of waiting is not wasted. God redeems the time, and he's going to use it to bring about a work of restoration and sanctification in our lives that couldn't be achieved otherwise. You see, God is so loving He is willing to take us down pathways and roads that we would never on our own walk down. But he'll take us down these roads because he knows it's only on some roads that you can have your soul and your character shaped in such a way to be formed and shaped into the image of God. That's what's happening. He's leading them down a path so that they can grow. It's a call to action, not to be overwhelmed by their circumstances and be paralyzed. There are just some things that can't come about unless we go down hard roads. And we intrinsically know this, right? You can't get the results of a good diet and exercise without actually what? Dieting and exercising. Trust me, I have tried. I'm on that plan right now, right? The only way to get the results of dieting and exercise is to actually go down the hard road of discipline of dieting and exercising, So this word from Isaiah is not, don't waste this season of waiting, but be proactive because God is coming. So it begs the question, what areas in our our life that we need to make ready for God? Where are the the places that, uh, where we need to metaphorically build highways, where we need to uh, uh, smooth out rough places, where we need to clean up the graffiti? Look with me at verse four says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These verses describe what happens when the king comes. You see, valleys, they're prone to flooding, aren't they? But they're gonna be raised up. Mountains, which seem unable to be passed over, they're gonna be made low. Uneven ground will be leveled and rough places will be made smooth. You see, when God comes, he brings revolution. Not only are we supposed to begin that revolution now by preparing our hearts to be ready for him when he comes, but we see that when the king comes, he brings about the change that our hearts are longing for. Our hearts long for the, values, for the valleys of depression to be filled We long for the unattainable things in life to be made attainable. We long for a smooth walkway when we feel like we're getting tripped at every turn. See, Isaiah is giving them a picture of the world as as we know it should be. See, we look around, we turn on the nightly news, we see a world as it is, and we know it shouldn't be this way, right? Like, there shouldn't be... um, uh, all of the, the, uh, uh, the sex scandals that are going on in our politics and in Hollywood. We, we see that and we go, that shouldn't be. 
Kids shouldn't be harmed. People should not be made to feel inferior because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background, right? We look at these things and we see it and we go, this is not supposed to be this way. What this passage is beautifully articulating is the valleys, they're gonna be filled. The high places are gonna be brought low. Everywhere where there's roughness, it's going to be smoothed out when the king comes. When it seems like nothing is ever going to change. When it seems like the brokenness has infected every system and every institution and every person. When it seems like the only natural response from us is despair and cynicism. Isaiah offers a different perspective. This perspective is one of revolution. And he's saying, friends, things are going to change. God is on the move. Our waiting is not in vain. He's not gonna offer empty pardons, cheap grace, blind eye justice, or minor fixes that won't last. The comfort that's offered here is real comfort to a needy people. And listen, don't miss this. He's saying comfort is here because God is here. This perspective is meant to be the antidote to our own self-focused or, or short-sightedness. When, 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 when it seems like all we can see is our own present circumstances, or we don't have a view bigger than ourselves, This is meant to give us a vision of hope, to lift our heads up so that we see God. And we can endure the season of waiting because we know that God is going to bring restoration to our relationship with him. And we also know he's gonna bring the revolution that our hearts long for. Let's look next at how reliable this perspective is. Look with me at verse six. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. See, at first glance, it seems that, uh, uh, it, it seems to change the perspective of hope. You kind of hear this, this, these words like, all flesh is like grass, it's withering. It was like, we were kind of on this good note, and then, man, that, it's, it's starting to go sour. The problem is we don't like to think of our own selves as fragile and frail, do we? We like to think of ourselves as immortal. But here's why this is actually good news. You see, everything that's been said so far is good news if and only if it's guaranteed. If God is going to bring about restoration and revolution, but it's not actually lasting and it's transient, then what good is it, right? Like, are we gonna be stuck on this cycle over and over and over again? So how can we trust that, his, that this is reliable and dependable? People are transient and unreliable. But what this is saying is that it's God's word that endures. The reason we can trust that these things will actually come to pass is because it's been promised by a God who never fails, by a God who never lies, by a God who always makes good on his promises. You see, people come and go. That's what he's saying. We're, we're like grass. We, have, we, we shoot up, we have our season, and then we go. People are like grass. We're, we're, like, we're like flowers. We have our blossom, we have our, our heyday, but then we fade away. We make promises that we can't keep. Every election cycle, what happens? We're told of change we can believe in. We're gonna make America great again. Progress for the rest of us. Stronger together. And the hits keep on coming. But is there ever any real and lasting change? No. These words are empty promises. They make good for bumper stickers and campaign speeches, but they never come close to bringing about the change that our hearts desire. 
You see, it's our words will decay and fade away. Like grass, we quickly sprout. We blossom for a season. Compared to the timeline of history, ours is just a tiny little dot. But God spans the timeline. And his word does not fade. It does not wilt. His word endures. You see, God's word has the same characteristics as God himself. God himself is reliable and unchanging. So he's contrasting human transience with divine permanence. This is not meant to belittle humanity. We're going to see in the next verse how much uh, he treasures us. But it is meant to give us a different perspective. We're not to put our trust in politicians and armies. We're not to look to the stars or good luck charms for hope. We don't even look to our own selves for our assurance. We're to look and trust in God. So again, it begs the question, where does your heart just immediately jump to? Where is it prone to put your trust? We're supposed to trust God and be, because he's the one who's committed to us. He's the one who has all the necessary resources to bring about the change and the restoration that we really need. And it's stamped and guaranteed by his word. And friends, God's word never changes. It doesn't change because he doesn't change. So not only is he bringing about restoration and revolution, and not only is his word reliable, but the last thing we're closing with this is he's gonna bring um, about relief. Look with me at verse nine. It says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those um, that are with young. You see, the passage ends where it began with this good news. It's news that's meant to be shouted out from the mountaintop so that everybody can hear. This is news that's not supposed to be contained. It's meant to be proclaimed confidently and fearlessly from the mountaintops. You see, one of the beautiful realities of Christianity is that God doesn't save his people with programs from afar or with lofty truths, with theological ideals from on high. How does he save? How does he deliver? He comes, he enters in. And when he comes, he brings about the relief that we need. So what this means is our waiting, this time of longing is temporary. I know it's hard, but knowing that it's temporary, I know it can seem endless, but knowing that it's temporary gives us hope and courage to endure. And what these verses tell us is that God is coming with the strength of a warrior. Do you hear that? It was with, with a might and with a strong arm. What, mean, what that means is this, no enemy will be able to resist him. And at the same time, he says, the one who is coming comes with the tenderness of a shepherd which means the weak will not be left behind. See, we need a savior who's both powerful and loving. You see, if he's just powerful, we'll get crushed in his wake. If all he brings is strength, that's bad news for weak people. But if he's loving and not powerful, he's impotent. He's not actually able to bring about the the change and the reform and the conquering of the enemies that we so desperately 
need. So the Bible presents the coming king as one who's both powerful and loving, strong and tender. That's the description of God that we get here. We need both of them. We need his mighty hand to deliver us from sin. And at the same time, we need the tender love and care that the shepherd brings. One more thing to see in, the, in these verses of relief. In these verses, it says that when the Lord comes, it says his reward is with him. Again, when I first saw that, I thought, is that, are, are we getting that reward? Like, what is that? But the way the language works in this text, it's actually the Lord's reward. So that got me thinking, what, do you, what can you give the guy who has everything? He's God, right? Like he owns everything. Every mountain is his, every star is his, every nation is his. What could be seen as his reward when everything is his? It's us. We are his reward. When God comes in his glory, his reward, his treasure is us. We are the people of his pasture. We are his treasure. We are the ones he is gathering to us. We are the ones in exile. We are the ones he is coming to deliver. You see, the Israelites of that day hoped that God would come, and he did. And we're the ones today in this season of Advent who say he has come. He has done that great work of redemption. He has come with power and love displayed on the cross. And now we look forward to the day when he will come again with that mighty strong arm to bring about the full and final restoration and relief that we all need. See, God is constantly broadcasting radio waves of hope out into the world. Our hearts are like these radios and they're picking up on these waves. That's why when you meet people, like that's why when you, when, when you hear messages of hope, people kind of tune in because all of our hearts are, 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 are wired in such a way to hear and respond and listen to hope. And God is constantly broadcasting these radio waves of hope out into the world. Isaiah is turning that dial up so that we can tune in to this message of hope. Restoration is coming. He is gonna bring about the revolution that we all know needs to happen. We can trust it because he is reliable. He is steadfast. He is guaranteed it by the word of his mouth. And we can hold on to the end because relief is coming. Let me pray.